to die, pour out for all mankind, God's only Son, perfect and spotless one, He never sinned, but suffered as if He Worthy of all 
Yeah. 
promises you make in your word. It's hard to begin to think about which, which ones are most precious to us. But we've sang about some very, very precious promises this morning. We've been reminded that you are near to us. God of all creation, the almighty, all-powerful, infinitely glorious God is with me, is with each and every one of your children. God, that is an incredible promise. We've sang not only about promises, God, but we've lifted you up as king. As we've sang those words, God, I pray that that truly is our heart's desire, that, that we long to see you as the Lord of our lives, that we long to see you reign, your rule and reign come to this earth. 
topple our kingdoms, to topple our, our, our idols, our strongholds. Heavenly Father, we sing your praises today. We worship the matchless and glorious name of Jesus, for he alone is worthy. Well, it sure is, is good to be back. Uh, our family had a great uh, trip. We spent time with family up in the Upper Peninsula and, and really just had a, a great time seeing, uh, you know, having our kids see cousins and, um, and explore the outdoors, getting some fishing in and everything. But it is great to be back here worshiping with you. And today uh, we're going to start a, a new study that's just going to kind of go for the next five or six weeks here on the heart of God. I had a chance recently to uh, read a book that had been on my shelf for a couple of months, and I finally picked it up. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and um, I, I had a hard time putting it down because uh, as, I, as I walked through this book, um, he just did a fantastic job of, of unpacking the love of God for his people and the far-reaching uh, character and nature of our compassionate God. And it just prompted some thoughts in my mind, and so I kind of wrote down a few sermon topics. And so this, this little mini-series here is born out of kind of what God has been doing in my own heart. And I think we're going to see, you know, we've been, we've been spending a lot of this time over the last few months talking about disciple-making, and we're going to see how this all comes back full circle and ties into that as we go a little bit uh, further into August. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Exodus on the screen I have down, we're, we're going to really focus on those two verses in Exodus 34. But for our scripture reading, we're going to back up to chapter 33. So if you want to start in chapter 33, that's where we're going to begin. Chapter 33, verse 18. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses said, Please... Show me your glory. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will 
put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I realize we're picking up in the middle of a story and we're actually going to in a moment kind of go back and look at the context in which we find Moses' encounter with God. The other night I was watching a movie and uh, there was a witness to a crime sitting down with the police and they brought in a sketch artist and the sketch artist wanted a description of the criminal that the, the witness had observed so that the police could have an idea of who they were looking for. So as they asked for descriptors, the witness gave physical descriptions. She gave the man's hair color and the, the height and, and Uh, She further described his facial structure and facial hair and skin color and on and on. You know, when it comes to describing someone, uh, it's usually pretty easy to begin to look at what we can see on the outside, visual descriptors. But how about when it comes to describing the inside? How do you begin to describe a person's heart? Let me take it even a step further. How would you this morning describe the heart of God? See, God, with God, we don't even have physical descriptors. The scripture says that God is spirit. But the Bible has a lot to say about who God is in his very being. We could describe attributes of God. If you're a theology student, you may throw around words like God's omnipotence, his, the, the fact that he's all-powerful. We might describe his holiness, or we might talk about his justice. But how would you describe his heart? We can describe his actions and his works as we see in the scriptures. We can describe his attributes. But what do we mean when we want to talk about the heart of God, the essence of who he is? Is that even possible? Um, I I was reading in in this book, and one of the things Dane Ortland said right at the outset of the book, he says, one thing to get straight right from the start is that when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether in the Old Testament or in the New, it's not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all that we do. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. 
what we daydream about while we're bored at work, maybe what's on our mind as we're drifting off to sleep at night. It's our motivation headquarters. The heart, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, if you remember, the heart in biblical terms is not part of who we are, but it's at the center of who we are. It's, the, it's sort of the center of the wheel, so to speak. Our heart is what defines and directs us. This is why Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, to keep the heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The heart is a matter of life. It's what makes us the human being each of us is. It's, it's what drives all we do. It's who we are. And over the next few weeks, I'd like us to spend some time looking at the heart of God. What drives God? We can put it in these terms. What gets God out of bed in the morning? What is his motivating passion? We see here in Exodus 34, as God reveals himself to Moses, out of all the things that he could have said about himself, this is what he says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. One writer said, short of the incarnation itself, this is perhaps the high point of divine revelation in all the Bible. Of all the ways God could have chosen to describe himself as he revealed himself to Moses, he used words saturated in tenderness and compassion. Moses, back in chapter 33, asked to see the glory of God. What a bold and audacious request. I can't imagine even that whole Sinai experience of receiving the Ten Commandments, speaking to God on the mountain there. And Moses had the audacity to ask God, would you please show me your glory? At least he said, please. The text says he used his manners. So at least he wasn't arrogant about it. And, and Moses, and we're told Moses is one of the most humble men who ever walked the face of the earth. But he had the audacity to say, God, would you give me a glimpse of your essence? And what is it that God shows him? We see the loving kindness and grace of God is at the core of his glory, the core of his heart. If you're taking notes on the, on the bulletins, a blank sheet of bulletin today, uh, the first thought I just want you to jot down is that the heart of God abounds with loving kindness. The heart of God abounds with loving kindness. It says, I'm not sure how your translation renders it, but it says here that the, he's a God merciful and gracious. I read that these were the first words out of God's mouth after proclaiming his name. The very first words. God does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord exacting and precise. He doesn't say, the Lord, the Lord tolerant and overlooking. He doesn't say, the Lord, the Lord disappointed and frustrated. Any of us see God that way? No, the highest priority, the deepest delight, his first reaction as he speaks of himself is this, his heart, that he's merciful and gracious. When you think about God, 
when you imagine his disposition toward you, is that what comes to your mind today? A God merciful and gracious? Or is it a God mildly perturbed, irritated because I blew it again? A God angry, aloof. His word, his own words, that he's a God merciful and gracious. He goes on to to add fuel to the fire, and he says, furthermore, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That word abounding caught my eye. He could have said possessing steadfast love and faithfulness. He could have said, uh, um, one of my qualities is. But it says that he abounds in it. What comes to your mind when you think of abounding in something? I think of more than enough. I think of, well, way back in pre-March, there were these things called buffets. I remember as a kid, I may have told you about this, but I'm at that age now where I, I think I'm allowed to repeat myself. Post forward, you can repeat yourself, and everybody's just supposed to accommodate it, right? Um, we, we had this buffet in Grand Rapids, uh, not far from where I grew up as a kid, um, that was only in existence for a short time, and you'll understand why here in just a second. On Tuesdays, kids 12 and under got to eat 10 cents times their age. Oh, yeah. Well, Tuesdays meant it was time to load up the Ketchum boys and go wreak some havoc on the old country buffet. And um, I'll tell you what, uh, like, we had, my mom and my grandmother would usually take us, and uh, we used to get, like, uh, like, we would hear things like, oh, no, you're not finished yet. That kind of, like, you can imagine why I have a little bit of a weight problem today. Um, they're like, oh, no, 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 you can do better than that. Here's another plate, child. Don't make me proud. And I would think, you know, there's, you know, you go there, and, uh, you know, we grow up in a home with four boys, and we were always fighting over the food. My mom always made plenty, but it felt like we were always fighting, especially for dessert, the last piece. But here, there was, it didn't run out. You could go up, and there was as much pizza as you wanted, as much dessert as you wanted, the ice cream machine. You could just keep the lever going, you know. And, and I, I think of, when I think of abundance, I, I think of buffets. I remember that place as, my, as, uh, as a child and, and, uh, and their short-lived existence. The old country buffet. This text here says that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not like he just has a little bit left over. This is on the clearance rack. You better get it while you can. That word abounding in the, in the Hebrew means much, uh, uh, numerous, more than enough. And it's frequently partnered with this phrase, this Hebrew word that we've talked about before, chesed, it's almost always translated in the ESV as, as steadfast love. It's, it's God's covenant relationship, his covenant love with his people. Chesed is God's way of saying, I have bound myself to you despite your disobedience and rebellion, no matter how far you wander, even though you've given me every reason to forsake you, my love will continue to pursue you. That's that word, steadfast love. And the Bible says that he abounds in it. 
It's a never-ending love. In fact, one of the Bible story books that we have read to our children over the years, I love their way of phrasing it. Uh, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's God's love to you today. And he abounds in it. Your lunch today, around the dinner table, there may not be enough for a second or third helping. I can't promise you there'll be an extra piece of pie at the end of dinner today. But what I can promise you is that when you wake up tomorrow, that God's love will be more than enough. If you go home and you lead your family in devotions around the Word, and, and you're the greatest and most godly example today, God's love will be there tomorrow. If you go home and you absolutely blow it and lose your temper and you, and you, you, you look at your neighbor's new fishing boat and you covet, you, you look at pornography and you lust, you, you, you feel anger or bitterness well up in your heart and you give in to temptation, God's love will be there tomorrow still. His steadfast love. He abounds in it. There is no, no end to this well. It never runs dry. Be assured of God's love for you today. It's absolutely impossible to overstate the love of God. When we were up north, our boys did some fishing, and our kids have learned right from an early age how to take pictures with your fish. They go much closer to the camera than you are. Uh, and uh, we always come home with fisherman tales, right? That fish gets bigger every time you tell the story. That, that buck that you saw that somehow your trail cam missed, it's, it's always bigger every time you tell the story. But God's love, it's impossible to over-exaggerate it. There's no fisherman tales when it comes to describing God's love. In fact, it's, it's better than any description that you could ever come up with. It's more lavish than, than, than what you could imagine. It goes beyond our wildest dreams, the love of God, the steadfast love. And if, that, if that's not enough, he actually adds abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not only does the well of my love never run, deep, uh, run dry, but my faithfulness will dog you and pursue you all the days of your life. What does that do for your heart this morning? When you hear the heart of God, what does that do for your heart this morning, my brothers and sisters? I hope that it draws you nearer to the heart of God as you hear about his heart. You at this moment are radically loved by God, not because you've been a good boy or girl, not because you came to the church service today, not because you didn't yell at your kids this morning. You are deeply loved by God because that's his very nature. I didn't give you the context of this passage I wish we had more time to read into it, but just flip over briefly to chapter 32. 
And if you look at chapter 32, what does your heading in the Bible say? Somebody shout it out. What's the heading of chapter 32 in your Bible? The golden calf. You guys know that story? They had just, the Israelites had just been miraculously delivered from Egypt, like the miracle of miracles, like the greatest act of love that that nation had seen up to that point of God's faithfulness and compassion and His mighty working power. Moses goes up to Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and he's gone, I don't know exactly how long, but not long, and he comes down and he, he, he hears something. And while he's up there receiving revelation from God, God's expression of his covenant love towards his people, he comes down and finds that his people have fashioned an idol to worship out of their jewelry. And God is ready to exercise his wrath. And Moses stands in their place and pleads for their forgiveness. And God forgives them. This unbelievable act of rebellion, this, just, this wasn't just an oversight. This wasn't just a, a, a lapse of judgment. This wasn't a, a little mistake. This was a conscious rebellion, an affront to God. They said, yeah, thanks, but we're going to choose the statue. And God, in that context reveals himself as a God who abounds in mercy and grace and eternal forgiveness. See, God doesn't describe himself this way because Israel had been good, because they had earned it. You don't have God's favor today because you have earned it, because you have done something meritorious, because you have pleased him. Therefore, his face is shining upon you. His grace comes despite our unworthiness. He abounds in love regardless of our actions. Real quickly, the last two. Number two, the heart of God is naturally inclined towards grace. The heart of God is naturally inclined towards grace. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch a Major League Baseball game or see any highlights, but as you know, they're, they're not allowing fans in the stadiums. And some of the, some of the stadiums have put up fake fans in the, in the crowd. They're piping in fake crowd noise into the broadcast. It's just kind of weird, but uh, they're trying. But, uh, you know, if you watched a game before this year, or if you've been to a game and you've ever sat right behind the catcher, like been right in front of the backstop, and a fastball gets by, or there's a foul tip that gets by, and it comes at the backstop. And you're watch, you watch it on TV. I don't think I've ever seen anybody just maintain eye contact and let that thing hit. I don't care how tough you are, you react a little bit. Like there's some people who just, just flinch a little bit. And then you have people who are like outright diving out of the way, across people, spilling drinks. Like you get a wide variety of knee-jerk reactions, but at least you flinch a little bit. Everybody reacts a little. There's that like split-second reaction. You know, the, when it comes to life, sometimes when life boils over, we have certain, certain ways that we're naturally inclined to respond. There are certain triggers that really can make me angry, just like that. Maybe you, you know what they are in your life. 
I don't know about you, but I often think of God as having a short fuse. I often think of God being easily provoked, easily upset with me. But when you look at Scripture, and this passage is an example, it tells us, verse 7 tells us that God is slow to anger. That means that God's first response, his first knee-jerk reaction, even when we sin, is in love. It's moving towards us. It's in grace. God has a slow fuse when it comes to anger, but he is quick to respond in love. We often think of it as the other way. That he's got to build himself up to kindness, build himself up to loving favor. But God, his first reaction, even when there's disobedience, even when the sinner turns his back, is to respond in love. Brennan Manning says, he has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. He's the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God's first reaction. When we sin, when we disobey, is a reaction of love. He extends his hand rather than withdraw it. He moves toward us in embrace rather than to fold his arms and turn his back. That's the heart of our God. Finally, the text tells us that the heart of God longs to forgive. The heart of our God longs to forgive. It says that he's a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Or some of your translations will say wickedness and rebellion and sin. Daniel 9.9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness. It's built into his very nature. And, and these words, these three words here used kind of cover the whole basis, iniquity, transgression, and sin. They're the three key Hebrew words that are used for, uh, for all kinds of wrongdoing. The, uh, the word translated iniquity there is, is primarily a, like an ethical word. It means to miss the mark, to, to move away from what God has, has caused us to do. Sin is kind of the, the general Hebrew word for, for disobedience. But that final word, uh, um, or that, that middle word there, transgression, or some of your translations uh, translate it rebellion, is that willful violation of the covenant. It's not merely disobeying a rule or a regulation, but it's betraying the relationship one has with a covenant king. It involves treachery as well as disobedience. The whole range of human disregard for the Lord here in this text has been met with forgiveness. That's the heart of our God. It's the very heart of God to delight in forgiving disobedience. And God has never begrudgingly forgiven anyone. We've all had times where our kids have fought. You say, hey, listen, you need to ask your brother for forgiveness. Hey, will you forgive me? And then, all right, well, you need to forgive him. Fine, I forgive you. 
And like, you know, that's not what you were going for there, but okay, well, that's what we got. God never forgives through gritted teeth. You know that? He delights in forgiving. God, does, God never says, I forgive you as he's rolling his eyes. God forgive, forgives out of the love and the delight of his heart. There's a danger, though, talking about the love of God this way. Putting the spotlight upon the compassion, the grace of God is fraught with peril. We're in danger, perhaps, of implying that God ignores sin. Perhaps we're in danger of uh, nullifying His other attributes, His justice, His wrath, His holiness. But this text doesn't let us do that. Verse 7 finishes that, with, by no means he will, clear, will He clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We see the seriousness of sin wrapped up in this passage. But even in the promise to judge sin, grace overrules in lavish fashion. At the beginning of verse 7, it says that he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. Some of your translations, and rightly so, will say for thousands of generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9 backs that up. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Do you see the contrast? His sin and judgment last three or four generations. His grace and forgiveness last thousands of generations. What he's saying here is that his forgiveness and grace and compassionate heart far outweighs his heart of judgment. God never, ever overlooks sin. He never passes by wrongdoing. That's why Jesus went to the cross. But his first reaction, his heartfelt reaction is to move towards sinners and to bring forgiveness. The other risk we take in talking about God's love this morning is I'm running the risk of allowing you to be comfortable in your sin, to hear only that God loves me no matter what I do. Well, that's true. But he also calls you to repent of your sin, to turn and to walk with him and enjoy that fullness of that relationship, which you will not so long as you cling to your sin. As we close, I saw a connection between this story in Exodus 34 and John chapter 1. Moses asked God, to show him his glory. God, please, let me see the essence of who you are. And as God showed him his glory, we see that as he opens up his heart, he reveals himself as a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness, a God who's slow to anger, the essence of who he is. When we come to the New Testament, the Apostle John is giving the introduction of his book to the readers. And he's describing this one, the Word, who was made flesh, Jesus. And he tells us in verse 14 
of John chapter 1. Listen carefully. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God went a step further than he did with Moses, a gigantic step further. I love how Dane Ortland puts it. He says, the Lord passed by Moses and revealed that his deepest glory is seen in his mercy and grace. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had only done in wind and voice in the Old Testament. Jesus brought that grace and that mercy, that steadfast love to life. And he made it possible for sinners like you and me to experience that steadfast love in that profound, eternal, covenant way through what he has done. This morning, what is God saying to your heart? Where are you at as you hear God described, the heart of God described this way? Does it still feel too good to be true that a God could love us no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've done or, or what's happened to us? Does it feel too impossible that this God has this kind of inexhaustible tenderness and compassion toward us? This is where we fight to believe truth. If your heart is saying, I don't know about that, hear how God himself reveals his own heart to you, to Moses, to the world. Because he did it not just in wind and voice. He did it in the person work of Jesus Christ. This morning, if this love is foreign to you, I would love to talk to you after the service, to talk to you more about this love that draws you in. But maybe your heart has known this love and you just need to be reminded, to be stirred up in a fresh way. And my prayer for you is that you respond just like Moses did. Did you hear his response in Exodus 34, 8? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped him. As we pray this morning, feel free to linger in, in prayer. I'd love to talk. I'd love to just allow you to have the opportunity to bow your head in worship and thank God for his steadfast love, for his heart that never gives up on you, never quits. Let's pray. God, we worship you. That your very heartbeat just abounds, overflows in steadfast love. God, we stand before you as those who don't deserve this. Some of us are acutely aware this morning 
of our failures and that we do not deserve to be loved by Almighty God in this way. Perhaps others of us have come in here proud. And we read that and we say, well, yeah, of course he would. Lord, break through that pride. Break through that self-reliance, that self-righteousness that somehow thinks I deserve, I, I, I've merited this love. And then God for the heart this morning who is fighting, is fighting to believe they could be loved. That Almighty God actually longs to draw them near. For the heart fighting to believe that there's enough mercy to cover what they have done. Enough grace to cover what they have been through. Oh Lord, may they hear your very words this morning. And grab a hold of the truth and fight to believe truth for their own very hearts today. God, draw us near and worship. Let us not be able to shrug off such incredible words, such incredible revelation. May we not be content to go home and Flip on the TV and not be shaken by your very nature, your very heart. And as our hearts are captivated by your love, oh God, stir our mouths to speak of this, this glorious God who loved us before the very foundation of the world was laid. May our, our, our words proclaim this to everyone who will listen. For great is your steadfast love. And oh God, we worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week.